Welcome to the Scott Thompson Podcast. Coming up on today's show, U.S. President Donald Trump's former lawyer pleads guilty and admitting to lying to Congress about a Trump hotel in Moscow. As well, a new report saying that people coming into the country illegally is going to cost us $1 billion over the next few years, and Netflix raising its prices, and perhaps the ire of the tax man. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, U.S. President Trump's uh, former lawyer, uh, former lawyer Michael Cohen, has pleaded guilty yesterday, admitting to lying to Congress last year about a real estate deal in Moscow that was in the works in 2016. To talk more about all of this, and of course the big signing, let's bring in Michael Tobe, a Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and with us now, Michael. How are you today? I'm doing well, Scott, and I, I'm glad to hear that Boris Karloff's singing voice is still actually coming out well, every so often. You know, he gets a couple of uh, amps behind him, and man, he sounds pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> I would say. He would probably say so, too, if he had the opportunity. <laughs> That's right. All right, we can't. Uh, let's start with the uh, with the uh, USMCA, or NAFTA 2.0. I believe sure. we even have a different name for it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> your talk about the signing and, and the, the, you know, the whole pomp and circumstance of it all. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we should stop calling it the new NAFTA, and I know that even Justin Trudeau was using the term as well. Part of the reason everyone's sort of saying is it still has to be ratified by all three legislatures, that means the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. But for all intents and purposes, the, with the signing ceremony, we're much closer to the end where the USMCA will be signed properly rather than just, say, fall apart. There's still some things, obviously, to go. I mean, today's ceremony, obviously, was interesting in the sense that a few weeks ago, as you may recall, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that he would not appear at any signing ceremony with U.S. President Donald Trump until all the tariffs off of steel and aluminum had been removed completely. But unsurprisingly, uh, Prime Minister Selfie couldn't help himself, and clearly he was out there taking photos, and that's fine, it is what it is. This was not obviously a harmful event. It's, you know, a signing ceremony is simply a nice event in general. It's, it, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't ratify anything. But the nice words that were said by all three leaders, including uh, Mr. Peña Neto, who is about to leave Mexico, actually as of today, this yeah. is his last day as president of that country. He'll be replaced um, uh, on, well, I think the official date is Monday morning, but unofficially it'll be tomorrow. Um, it's a nice moment for all three in the sense that after a couple of years of yelling, screaming, bartering, fighting, and maybe even a few niceties here and there, it's finally done, at least from their angle. Now it's up to the legislatures to make a decision whether it should go through or not. What about uh, the Prime Minister's comments on the tariffs at, towards the end of this and, and actually referring to Donald and, and saying these got to come off? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, no, I mean, he's not wrong. Those tariffs should be removed. I mean, I'm certainly on side with Mr. Trudeau on that. I mean, tariffs are not beneficial to any economy. And if you truly believe in the free market economy and the, the nature of capitalism and just globalization in general, tariffs are, you know, are obviously a way in history that countries have used things to protect their own products. But the, the, the markets are completely different now, and the mentality we have is completely different. There are obviously still people who are economic nationalists, like U.S. President Donald Trump, around. And for that reason, he still is able to use tariffs as a weapon. And I know that obviously some people around him have suggested <clears throat> that he's not really wildly in favor of tariffs. He just knows that it's a way for the U.S. to gain an economic advantage over countries that they're having some sort of a financial dispute with. But, the, but the, you know, whether or not that's the case... He uses them so often, sometimes you actually have to wonder if it's really just part and parcel of his way of thinking, even though his history is really actually as a free marketer, if you go back to Trump's career. Anyway, look, I think that certainly uh, Justin Trudeau threw in one big jab. He had every right to do it. Uh, whether he should have standing there or not is another issue. But he didn't say it in such a way that it, w- it was crafted at least to sort of state that, look, Donald, you know, I'm glad that, you know, the USMCA has been signed. You know, 70% of Canadian goods will be free from tariffs. That's great. But this is the reason why we have to finish the job, because the rest of it, that being steel and aluminum, is not beneficial to keep in mind. And 
you know, obvi- uh, Mr. Trump did not make any sort of an expression, you know, just kind of stood there, which is fine. And I think that's probably the right way for him to handle it. But I, I think that Canada was right to make the comment, whether it should have been done there or not, is another issue. All right, uh, so much to talk about here, uh, and hopefully we'll get some time to touch on the G22. But uh, in regard to U.S. President Trump's former lawyer, uh, lawyer Michael Cohen, pleading guilty yesterday, here's what the the president had to say on that. We were thinking about building a building. I guess we had in a form, it was an option. I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, We decided, I decided ultimately not to do it. There would have been nothing wrong if I did do it. If I did do it, there would have been nothing wrong. That was my business. All right, uh, your thoughts on the whole Trump Tower in Moscow uh, discussion? Well, he's actually technically right. He was allowed to continue to do business while he ran for the presidential nomination for the Republican Party. So if a deal had been made with Russia, even though obviously you would think that he would try to avoid something like that, even long before there was discussions of collusion and things, just because of the way Vladimir Putin operates Russia currently, um, it still would have been legal. That's, that's the irony of this. Whether it was a good idea or a bad idea is another thing. Look, all businesses and all business enterprises look at certain types of deals in, if they're large enough in different countries, and if they feel that the deal makes sense for them, well, then they sign it and move forward. It may very well be true, because I don't know all the specifics, and you don't and most people don't, as to in terms of wh- how far this actual deal or discussion went, and why it specifically collapsed. The only thing that we do know, and that it's the one consistent out of all this discussion, is that Trump, or at least the Trump organization, did not go through with it and did not go ahead with it. Should he have also then come out and said, but it would have been perfectly fine to do it? Again, that's up to him, and unfortunately sometimes the man just does not think uh, before he acts or before he speaks, which is always a huge mistake, and it's been a big mistake since the very beginning, although with his supporters, they're, they're clearly not bothered by it. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, does it make that big a difference? No. Should he have talked about it? No. You know, is it going to necessarily affect the Michael Cohen case? That's an interesting issue. We don't know what's involved with Cohen's plea deal. The terms and conditions have not been specifically revealed or leaked out to date. At some point, we certainly will know because we'll be able to, at some point, find out what Michael Cohen directly said to the Mueller Commission and what it was related to. Could he produce some interesting insight about this or other things related to the so-called Russia collusion during the 2016 presidential election? Yes, it's possible. But I think that it was actually kind of clever for the White House and Mr. Trump as well to throw out the air that, you know, here was his lawyer at one point saying one thing. Now that he's made a plea deal with Robert Mueller, it looks like he might actually potentially say another. So the question is, which one do you believe? Do you believe the one that, you know, that originally said everything was fine, hunky-dory to begin with, or the one who one assumes is going to be more critical this time around? That's really up to the individual to decide. So obviously Trump will he'll work on the credibility angle here and the fact that they're flip-flopping. I think it's the easiest way for him to fight back. Yeah. It, it certainly makes the most sense to me anyway. Uh, no one uses the word collusion more than Donald Trump does. True. For, for a guy who isn't guilty, why does he act so much like he is? True, although I would put the caveat that CNN certainly uses it a lot, too. So I think they're both pretty bad with that word. But why does he use it so much? Um, I think what has really actually happened is the word collusion, as we know, has a negative connotation to it. It's not something you want to be involved in, because it looks like something nefarious was done behind the scenes. However, the way that Trump and the Trump White House have been using it is that the theory of collusion is just a complete co- concept. It's, it's made up. It's not real. It's fake, whatever you wish to call it. Ergo, they're basically saying that this whole thing is, as Trump u- likes to use, another of one of his popular phrases, witch hunt. He likes to say that everyone is basically just coming after me, that being Donald Trump, and everyone dislikes everything I do. The Mueller Commission has been there for two years. What have they produced? You know, where am I specifically tied to this, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. The word collusion obviously is used differently by different people. Most of it uses in the way that, you know, it's terrible, awful. 
Donald Trump is using it as just a means of basically trying to show that the Mueller Commission really doesn't have anything on me except this magical word that they can't tie me to. The breadcrumb trail doesn't seem to lead from Donald, you know, Donald Trump to X, whatever X is. And until that report comes out, which I think is getting closer to at this point, um, we won't really know anything else other than, you know, until that time. So for the nature of collusion, I wish he would stop using it. I agree with you, but it's obviously something. And I'm that sure you're not the first one attempting to use. I'm sure you're not the first one to suggest that, Michael. Either that, hmm? that I'm sure you're not the first one to suggest that either. I'm not. I'm hardly the first. Is he I feeling? Mean, look, the, is he I, feeling I think the heat? Everyone else is somewhat confused by it too, except you know those who obviously work in the Trump White House and have decided to either follow this strategy or just march along with it and not say very much. But again, what can you do? I mean, if this is what they've decided to do in the Oval Office and the strategic side, and there is a strategic side there, they feel that it's to their advantage to keep using the word collusion, mm-hmm. throwing it out there as being a noth- like a nothing burger or a nothing moniker, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Well, what can you do? I mean, the, the, the only thing we can say is, like you, I, and others, we can criticize them for doing it, but we can't stop them. Uh, let's get back to the G20 uh, and him canceling his meeting with Putin. How significant is this? Well, it's interesting. As you've probably noticed, he did cancel the formal bilateral. That's true. But there's apparently a very small impromptu meeting that's now been announced just in the last hour or two. So it's going to probably be a quickie five-minute, ten-minute thing, which will just happen. You know, who knows? It might even happen out in the open. They'll do it fast and then just go. But the fact that the formal bilateral was actually canceled is actually rather intriguing when you sort of look at the issue that's being faced right now between Russia and Ukraine and their various battles and, and you know, over the sea or in the sea. Um, and this is the second time Russia and the Ukraine have actually been at loggerheads with one another in several years. We all sort of remember what, what my old friend and boss Stephen Harper did the last time that this happened, and the line that he may or may not have directly said to Mr. Putin at that time, which was basically just to, you know, to step back, so to speak, and just not get involved in this, and that, you know, that Western countries or democracies like Canada are not going to put up with it. Um, But again, we don't know specifically what Mr. Harper said, and we may never exactly. Um, At least in here, The interesting thing is that although Donald Trump has not come out and criticized Russia and Mr. Putin too heavily based on this current skirmish with the Ukraine, the fact that he canceled the formal bilateral, irrespective of this little tiny meeting, is significant in that, you know, he's at least showing or expressing his displeasure with what's been happening in that part of world affairs. Again, the big problem is that Donald Trump loves to do this dance where he says certain things in public that go one way, then later he'll say certain things in public that seem to go another way, and he doesn't either backtrack, apologize, change an opinion, or do anything other than just sort of go with the flow and move forward day to day to day. It's a wild philosophy because most politicians, if they change their minds or they decide to do something different strategically, they'll announce it and they'll announce the reasons why. Donald Trump has produced no reason for it because you would think that if you cancel the bilateral with Vladimir Putin, you would also then, I don't know, impose sanctions, do something else that shows how angry or frustrated you are with the way Russia is handling things. Does this have anything to do, Michael, with what's happening back home and with Cohen and the Trump deal in Moscow? Is he trying to make it look like perhaps he's not as cozy with Putin as everyone could could assume? Yeah, and you're right. That certainly could be a part of it. I agree with you. That, But on the other hand, if he really wants to ensure that, or, or at least justify his position that there never has been any collusion whatsoever, and recognizing that Russia has made many tactical and questionable decisions over the years, you would think that he would be stronger and more heavy-handed with the Russians, because that would then at least show, say, the media and other public officials that he is talking tough, that he is fed up with Russia, and there, there really may not be any sort of a tie. By doing this little dance with Russia, he leaves that impression out there, and I think strategically it's a bad move for him. 
Uh, we know what's happened with these uh, gatherings in the past. Uh, Donald Trump kind of ends up looking like a bull in a china shop and then usually bolts early. Yeah. Uh, this one starts with a, a good news story in the sense of the, of the signing of the USMCA deal. Right. How? What will be the storyline at the end of this? At the end of the G20? Yes. Well, again, I mean, obviously we have to see what other issues are on the table and what other discussions are held. What about his position on Saudi Arabia, Donald Trump's? I don't think it's going to change all that much, quite frankly. I think we've really seen it. Because he's also, I was going to say, he's doing the dance with other things, including the Jamal Khashoggi murder. Mm. He does it as well. Where, yes, he has been at least in lockstep with American officials and intelligence services who have said that there really does seem to be some sort of a tie between the Saudi Kingdom and Mr. Khashoggi's murder, but at the same time, Mr. Trump and other officials, and that includes, say, uh, Mr. Bolton and others, have come out directly and said, well, you know, we're not going to get directly involved in that, or they've left it to the president (laughs) to make a decision. So there are no formal sanctions, at least in the, well, in the near future, from the U.S. against Saudi Arabia, which is in contrast to other Western democracies, what about like even- Canada, for example, who just actually put forward some sanctions this week. But the impact of the Canadian government is minimal at best. It would really have to be a bigger power like the United States to make them more effective. I hope at some point they change their minds. I hope they do something there. But... The real difficulty is if you look at the history of U.S.-Saudi Arabia relations, it's a long one, you know, politically, economically, militarily. It's always been there. It's not that Americans have not been critical of the Saudi kingdom for human rights abuses, uh, the mistreatment of women, and various other things. They definitely have been critical. But it's always been a very difficult decision for a lot of U.S. presidents, Democrat and Republican, to actually figure out how to handle a controversy with Saudi Arabia. And you always walk on eggshells and very gingerly around the issue. Uh, There's a difference between doing that, though, Michael, and actually questioning the CIA intelligence or the intelligence that you've gathered. I mean, there's a way to do this without insulting the other. Uh, What is the rest of the G20 going to think about his denying his own uh, agency's intelligence. Well, I I think they'll probably just think the same thing they've been thinking for the last two years. It's typical Donald Trump, because that's what he always seems to do. I mean, I know that he said in the past, and we could go on forever, about how he's well-read, how he understands the issues better than the experts do, etc., which is all complete nonsense. But at the same time, one still hopes that Mr. Trump is at least sometimes reading the briefing notes, sometimes listening to what experts are telling him, and some of it is getting into his skull. And my hope is that a little bit is. Unfortunately, with certain issues, and I guess we can just use Saudi Arabia as the most obvious example, it's going to be very contrary to most world opinion to not issue some sort of sanctions against Saudi Arabia. So the Americans are taking a very, very different side. So what are other world leaders going to think? Besides what I said, they'll obviously be very frustrated because a unified front against Saudi Arabia works best. And if many of these powerful world countries, you know, or international countries, including the U.K., Germany, France, the U.S., etc., if all of them align against the Saudis, it really has some meaning. It's tangible. It has real impact. If it's just going to be some countries here and other countries not there, and the United States is not even going to be a part of it, hmm. it's, going, it's not going to have the same sort of meaning. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thanks for yours, and have a great weekend. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, Parliamentary Budget Office is uh, reporting out that Ottawa is on pace to spend more than $1 billion over the next three years on the issue of irregular border crossings and, of course, a problem that has continued to go on and uh, labor this government as there, there really doesn't seem to be any plan to sort of fix this or, uh, or, or find a better way of handling the situation. Let's bring in Giddy Maman, senior partner, founder of Maman Sandaluck Kingwell LLP. He is an immigration lawyer and spends his time trying to get people into the country legally. And uh, Giddy is with us now. Uh, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated, Giddy. My pleasure, Scott. So now we know the costs, and this is just for the uh, federal government. This doesn't include the cost for the provinces. How does that change the discussion? 
Uh, I think the discussion needs to focus on um, trying to accomplish the greatest good uh, for the buck. And the question is, uh, we're going to be spending, uh, you know, it's, uh, we really don't know. I mean, they're, they're talking about over a billion dollars federally, but a big chunk of that, maybe even a bigger chunk of that, is going to have to come from the provinces because they cover social assistance and they cover medical um, and housing, et cetera. So it's going to be an interesting number. But then we have to divide that by how many people are benefiting from that money. And then asking ourselves the question, is this the, the greatest good that we can do for the dollar? Uh, I think that that's, a, that's a, an approach that Canada has to consider. Uh, or uh, do we uh, spend money um, to try to resettle people who are in refugee camps? Is that, is that cheaper? Or maybe there is a, uh, a local solution rather than uh, uh, an international solution where people come from far away all the way to Canada uh, into an unfamiliar uh, land. Uh, there's lots of questions as to whether or not we're accomplishing the greatest good here. Are we looking at a long-term strategy? Are these all Band-Aid solutions? And if this is the new norm, does not uh, proper policy have to be put in place to deal with not our generosity, but the sheer numbers? Uh, I think that's going to be decided at the next election, quite frankly. I, I don't know that this particular government is going to change its uh, course um, uh, I think they're so heavily uh, vested in it that they, they, it'd be very difficult to see a retreat. Uh, if we, if, if, if the country goes conservative, I think there is going to be a new approach to this. But right now, I think this is the foreseeable uh, future. Um, I don't think that it's sustainable. I think the, it's not so much the cost. Uh, I think um, the Canadian public only has uh, so much patience, and I think that. Uh, the numbers in terms of the uh, uh, the polls are showing that Canadians are not uh, are not liking what's happening at our border, and I think that with time those numbers are going to continue to increase. So, um, we'll, does we'll, we'll that see. does that say something about our generosity, Kitty? I, I mean, you know, there's an interesting stat saying that just came out that that hate crimes are up. Is this because we are not empathetic, or is it because Canadians think the system's being gamed and the government's not doing anything about it. Uh, I don't think uh, I'll ever be persuaded that Canadians are not empathetic. I think we're a, bu- uh, we're a bunch of the nicest and most generous people uh, in the world. And we're all immigrants. I mean, if we're not, our parents are, our grandparents are from somewhere. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think that that's the case. I think what's happening is I think that we Canadians, like many other countries, are starting to feel like that we're losing control of our own destiny here, that we don't have a control over our border. Our governments don't seem to be seeing that. They don't seem to be responsive to that. They seem to be following uh, a narrative of globalism uh, at the expense of uh, the nation-state uh, and the, you know, the unique identities, economies, cultures, of specific countries. I just don't think that Canadians feel like they're in control. Uh, I, I think that's what we're seeing. Uh, I think if uh, Canadians were to spend two or three or four times these dollars, but they felt that they were going out and selecting those refugees that they feel uh, are in greatest need and that we are being efficient with our dollars, I don't think Canadians would mind at all. I just don't think that they believe that this is the best way to go about this. And uh, how concerned should Canadians be that although we can look south of the border and point fingers and giggle at what's happening down there in some incidences, uh, that problem's not going to come north of the border? Um, Because I've talked to American experts that say, you know, again, if you think this is just our problem, it's not in regard to things like the caravan? Um, it's, it's very hard uh, for me to comment on that and, and say we, we, uh, we are going to be seeing caravans uh, on our southern border with the states. Um, I think the situation is going to be much more subtle. 
there's going to be... Well, we're really uh, not seeing a, a caravan, Giddy, because it's a continuous flow. A caravan... That's exactly ha- right. A caravan the word hop- I was going to use was sort of creeping annexation, sort of a creeping... Yeah. I mean, the only time you get a caravan... The only time you get a caravan is when you put a wall up and the people start to accumulate. That's when you but, notice the caravan. Do, do Canadians not realize the same thing's happening here? It's just that they're coming in and they're not gathering. Well, it's sort of like uh, you know boiling the frog, where you you know you're, you're you're turning up the temperature a little bit, a little bit until it's too late to jump out of the pot. Um, and I think that's what's happening. And I think that uh, the Canadians are starting to feel an increase in the in the temperature. Um, the caravan is a very very political movement, and there is a very anti-Trump, very anti uh, sort of um, American. Uh, sort of statement being made there. Uh, there is no such sentiment, I don't think, against Canada. But that doesn't change the underlying dynamics. The underlying dynamics is with or without these caravans of five or 10,000 people or 20,000 people or 50,000 people. I don't really care about those numbers. The numbers that I'm always looking at is the 10 to 12 million people who are in the United States without status. Uh, that's a much bigger group of people, mm. and the question is going to be when those people feel that their future is in, in the United States is limited, they're going to start to move. And as long as our border appears to be um, porous and being accepted by our government as porous, then I'm going to be looking at the dynamics in the United States to see at what point those people are going to start to move. And those groups are the TPS countries, those temporary protected status countries. When those TPS, those TPS countries have been uh, extended for up to 18 months, so in a year, a year or two from now, we're going to start seeing people who are going to be truly desperate and who are going to be in great numbers saying, where can I go? There's no way I can take my kids back with me to my country. They'll never make it there. And the only place to go is north. And if that border is still open, that's when you're going to start to see huge numbers, not the numbers that we're seeing today. So the solution to America's uh, immigration issue is Canada. Well, yeah, of, of course. We are, we are that uh, pressure valve uh, of the United States. Uh, when, when the pressure in the United States gets too high, that pressure is released through the northern border. I mean, it's obvious. It should be obvious to anybody who sees the situation. Um, it, it's always been like that. Uh, of course, in far less numbers and not so much in your face. Uh, governments of the past have always done what they could to um, limit uh, this movement. Uh, but this this government is not doing that at all. And I'm not saying that they're facilitating this, but they are establishing um, sort of temporary ports of entry. Instead of fencing the, the ditch so that people are less likely to climb over it, uh, they're bringing resources to those ports. Not, I'm using the word port of entry. Yeah. Those, those uh, unauthorized the fence, yeah. places um, and making them function as if they yeah. were legitimate ports of entry. They have RCMP officers, they have buildings, bathrooms, they have uh, immigration officers, uh, they have transport vehicles, they have everything. Uh, and that's, uh, and that's the, the problem. In, in fact, I saw today on Twitter uh, a reporter was circulating uh, a document from the UNHCR saying uh, how to make a refugee claim in Canada. And if you happen to be in the United States, this is how you, you, you enter Canada. And that is a remarkable document coming from the United Nations, mm. basically uh, seeing, seeming to adopt this practice, even though it's an illegal practice, uh, as, as procedure. Wow. To, to enter Canada. I mean, when I saw it, I, I wasn't sure if it was real or not, but it is. So what will happen if this is left unchecked at the Canadian border? Is this a temporary situation? Is this the new norm? Um, the fact that people live in poor countries is never going to change. Um, we, God willing, will always be a country that is relatively uh, wealthy and prosperous, uh, free uh, and desirable. That will never change. The only thing that can change is how 
um, we respond to people who desire to come to Canada. Um, in my, my 31 years of practice, it's always been consistent that the government try to enforce the border and try to limit the number of people who came here uh, without authorization. Um, this is unique in our history. I think it is very much tied to our particular government. Um, as I said, I think that a future government, uh, maybe even this one, may decide to change course and take even a more generous approach and, and in fact, take more uh, refugees than we are currently taking. But it's going to have to change the way it does that because um, I just can't see that Canadians are going to tolerate what's happening right now for much longer. And how is it fair to the people that you represent and our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents that came in over the years and did it through the right channels? I mean, that's it's just simply not fair. I mean, we're all trying to help those that are in need, but there's a difference between that and those that are jumping the queue. We have to feel like we're in control. When you don't feel like you're in control, then you get... Uh, negative attitudes and negative stereotypes that you talked at the uh, top of the segment. Um, for example, uh, many Canadian citizens who are very hardworking people uh, want to bring their parents from overseas. For example, they can't just have them come over. They have to have three years of suitable income. They have to undertake to take care of their parents. Their parents have to you know, go through medical clearances, you know, and quite often the situation, the application process is complex enough that you need to get uh, a lawyer or a consultant, and that's going to cost you more money. And they must be sitting there saying, I don't understand this. Why is it difficult, if not impossible, for me to bring my parents over here, yet anybody could just come across the border? Uh, I mean, it's, 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 uh, yeah. it's, it's hard to imagine. Or, for example, if I'm a Canadian citizen, and I was actually thinking about this, uh, uh, you know, as I was driving into the office this morning, I wonder what would happen if I went to Roxham Road on the American side with my Canadian passport, and I tried to cross at uh. this very point here with my Canadian passport and say I want to be admitted to Canada because it's not illegal for me to cross here, as I'm being told. Uh, what would their reaction be? Um, it, it, That's a great thing, question. It, it just makes no sense, and I think Canadians, I think Canadians are smart enough to understand that, whether or not they're experienced in immigration law or not, they're, they're, they can fathom these situations. Where it just doesn't make any sense to anybody. So at the end of the day, Giddy, is this about rejigging, updating, uh, just like the same thing we did with NAFTA, the third-party agreement? Or is it a case of the states is no, or this government in the states right now has no interest in doing this, because what do they care? The, the safe third-country agreement has nothing to do with this situation in the sense that uh, it's a lose-lose proposition for us. That safe third-country agreement was put there really... Uh, for the advantage of Canada. There was a lot of, uh, back in the day, there were a lot of refugees in the United States who were losing their refugee claims, and after they lost their refugee claims, they, they, they thought, you know, maybe I should go to Canada and I'll have a better chance of success there. So to avoid that two kicks at the can uh, solution and approach, uh, the Safe Third Country Agreement was passed. But the beneficiary was Canada. Canada got the benefit because nobody was going from Canada to the United States to make a refugee claim because it was much tougher to win in the United States. So if the safe third country agreement were to be uh, set aside and canceled, well, then any refugee in the United States, any refugee right. claimant can go to any port of entry and any place in between to make a refugee claim. If we try to renegotiate the agreement with the United States, the United States can't possibly give us a, a much sweeter deal. They're already giving, getting rid of their own illegals at our expense. Right. So what incentive do they have in renegotiating this agreement? They'd yeah. have to be crazy to yeah. do that. I mean, Donald Trump must be laughing every night at the White House that the illegals are in, in his country are just walking out to Canada at no cost to him. Mm. Uh, there are no detention costs, no removal costs. Uh, there are no social costs associated with knocking on someone's door and arresting them in front of their neighbors with children around. 
this is the best thing that the United States could ever hope for. Why on earth would they renegotiate this deal? It would be just like NAFTA, where, where they hold all the cards. Uh, Canada was a great beneficiary of NAFTA. The United States, not so much. That's why they were able to uh, make such a great deal, because the Americans really had very little to lose. So where is this going, Giddy? What will government be forced to do eventually? Uh, it's uh, Really, it's all in the hands of our Prime Minister, Justin, uh, Justin Trudeau. He's got to decide if, uh, if, if he's willing to... Uh, you know, to get himself out of the corner that he painted himself in. He how does he do, how does he do that? He's a welcoming country, much in contrast with the United States. So maybe, you know, he's generated some goodwill for Canada by saying that, but at the same time, this is the, the bill. This is what it's going to cost. And um, uh, please don't let your listeners believe that this is going to cost us a billion or two billion dollars for 30, 40, 50,000 people. Uh, these are just two- or three-year figures, a lot of people in three or four years are still not even working full-time, and there's social assistance costs uh, that are going to go on for years. So uh, these numbers are nowhere near reliable, and I have still yet to see the provincial numbers, what each province is thinking that this is going to cost them uh, in, uh, in, in social assistance, housing, uh, medical costs. It's, it's, very, very, uh, it's very unclear what those costs are going to be. Giddy Maman has been with us, senior partner, founder of Maman Sandalot Kingwell LLP. They are immigration lawyers. Giddy, thank you for the time as always. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, I'm not, um, I'm not a big consumer. I'm not a big watcher of series, movies, I, I'm the sort, and, I, and I think the reason is, and, and my wife hates this about me, is that I remember going to a kid, I remember being a kid or a teenager and at that age where you, you were sort of too young to do other things and too old to do other stuff and you were sort of caught in the middle. So every weekend we went to a movie theater and, and saw something and I remember thinking, my goodness, there's two hours of my life I'll never get back. So I became a very fickle viewer. And it really, it really, something really has to grab me in order for it to, to Netflix me, in order to, to, to sit me in a chair and I'm stuck there for a day or two, it seems like. Uh, but, but man, there's some shows on Netflix, whether it's, you know, you can go, I guess this started for me with The Sopranos, then perhaps Breaking Bad. Now I'm into Narco. Can you see the, there's a theme growing here? Uh, anyway, and, and so my latest is Narco, and and I, you know, I do this when I work out because it it makes working out exciting for me. But uh, the thing that, that that Netflix does that cripples me is as soon as you go, oh, I can't believe how that's just ended. Four, three, two, one. We're into the next one, and I'm sucked in for another sixty some odd minutes or however long they are. So I'm in. I'm in. I love it. I, 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 I think these services are tremendous. And it's very hard to watch traditional TV after you've been viewing these. Because, you know, especially if you haven't recorded traditional TV. Because then you can at least buzz through the commercials and such. Uh, but, you know, I, I remember watching something and it's been such a long time. What's this? It's a commercial. I, I'm not just going to sit here for three minutes and watch this. Are you kidding me? So now that we're hooked... It's, it's the heroin of TV. The price slowly keeps creeping up. But still, at, I don't know, $13.99 a month, $15.99 a month, isn't it still a great deal when you think about it? Here's the other thing that has people uh, upset, some upset. This isn't taxed. So you, and I'm sure what you don't tax it because then my price will go up, and it will. But think of how many people are watching this service and uh, government's not making a dime off it. So I'm not sure that them raising the price will necessarily tick viewers off. I'm sure it will. But I think it will also draw attention to the tax man, perhaps more than anything. Uh, let's bring in Carmi Levy, Levy a, a tech analyst, and is with us now. Carmi, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Oh, so great being here, Scott. How upset are people about this? And do they care? Do they mind paying a couple of extra bucks for this service? 
Well, it's interesting. It's it's kind of hard to read through the fog. You know, anytime there's any price increase in any service, you go online, and of course there will be a a small but vocal minority that just absolutely go crazy. They're you know they're they 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 hate the company now, and they're going to quit, and it, it's a, a violation that they've raised the price. And then, you know, the dust kind of settles after a few days and weeks, and then you realize that the same people are still subscribing to the company, and they're still buying their service because they still like it. And I think that's the way it's going to play out here. When Netflix raised their prices last year by a, generally a dollar across the board, and there was a similar hue and cry, and um, according to the company, their subscriber figures haven't taken a hit. Their growth continued uh, you know, unabated. And so I think the same thing will play out here. Obviously, it's a somewhat larger increase there may be a little bit more attrition, but bottom line, you know, I think you said it best in the intro is that, you know, it's still a screaming deal. Mm. It was a screaming deal at eight bucks a month. It'll be a screaming deal at, you know, 16 or 17 bucks a month, whatever it is, because compared to what we've already been spending on our traditional cable or satellite, the value for the dollar, the, that entertainment dollar is still high, even at the new at the new rate. And I think uh, a lot of consumers, I think when they kind of get over their initial, oh, it's going to cost me more hurts going to realize that that's still the case. Will this just draw the attention of the tax man? Well, I think it, it will and it should, because, you know, here you have, I think we need to recognize Netflix, American company, uh, does not have, has barely any kind of presence in Canada, doesn't uh, hire a lot of Canadians, doesn't pour a lot of money into the Canadian entertainment economy. Uh, they do have some production north of the border, but not a lot, not a large percentage. And all of their revenue goes back south of the border. It doesn't get plowed back into Canada's cultural industries. It doesn't help Canadian producers, uh, you know, get a leg up in the business. It doesn't allow us to have, uh, you know, centers of production across the country. And that's kind of unfair. They are, the, they are the dominant player, yet they don't really contribute back to the communities that allow them to be profitable. And we've been saying this all along, and I think especially as they, they implement their largest ever absolute and percentage increase, I think it's reasonable for us to say, hey, Mr. Taxman, start focusing in on this company. You've been saying it for years. Time to act. Um, what about money into Canadian productions? I thought they were starting to go that way. They're starting to, but again, I think it's more of a, you know, let's kind of throw them a bone to so that we won't be criticized, as opposed to the government saying, you must spend a certain percentage of your revenue or of your profits in Canada so that the, the industry here continues to thrive. These are rules that have been in place for traditional broadcasters, traditional producers, conventional media for decades, and they've all been under the, the auspices of the CRTC, our national telecom regulator. But as an internet player, Netflix is completely outside of that regulatory framework. And, uh, you know, I think it's time. The CRTC has been standing by the sidelines for decades saying, basically, we're going to wait to see how this internet thing works out before we decide if and how we're going to regulate it. I think that time has come because uh, as streaming rises as an influence in the entertainment world, um, you know, we need to protect the industries that feed that process. Otherwise, if we don't, what's going to happen, all of this new content is going to come from outside of Canada. We're not going to have an industry to speak of. Is it black and white, Carmi? I mean, is, uh, if, if, if we decide that Netflix needs to be taxed, does that open the floodgate of regulation to the Internet? I mean, in other words, does that, does that take the, the, the Internet from, as you, point, as you pointed out, regulated to, uh, from unregulated to regulated as soon as you do that? I think it moves us in that direction. It, it opens the door. It, it won't be a, a, a you know an overnight black and white type of transition, but I think it starts getting us thinking about you know how we should regulate and whether we should. And, and, and make no bones about it, I'm no fan of of overt government regulation because ultimately that costs us too to put that infrastructure in place. Taxpayers pay for that. Um, and, you know, there are many producers who say, I don't really want the government in my business. I just want to do what I want to do and build my business. And so there are always two sides to that coin. But at the same time, I think when you have a multi-billion dollar American company reaping profits off of Canadian consumers, uh, at some point you, you do need some kind of force to level the playing field so that we're not taken advantage of either on a consumer basis or on a producer basis. I think we all want that. Uh, we just want to make sure that there isn't this draconian oversight mechanism in place. As long as we do it that way, in other words, the government shouldn't overregulate, just put in just enough to keep things fair, I think that'll be a balanced approach. Uh, so uh, why are we looking at this like an all-or-nothing proposition? Uh, is this less about Netflix and more about the fight to keep the Internet unregulated? 
whenever you're the 800 pound gorilla in the room, right. you of course get all the attention. So like right now, you're right. The, the, the title, the label that we're putting on this conversation is Netflix, Netflix, Netflix. But the reality is we're only talking about Netflix because they're, they're the biggest player in the game, but there are others. There's, you know, Bell Media's Crave TV. Disney is moving into, into the market. Um, CBS all access is going to market as well. And so we're seeing a, a you know, much higher level of competition. New players are coming in. They recognize, hey, there's money to be made from this streaming thing. So, you know, so goes Netflix and so should go the entire industry. Uh, we really do need to take off those blinders and ensure that the rules that apply to this one company will also apply to anyone who wants to sell streaming services to Canadians. So as soon as they open up the door to Netflix, it's just a matter of time before the rest of the Internet in some controlled form gets regulated. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, the, I, I'm a bit of an optimist. I tend to think that this will help uh, you know, even though you know regulation scares some people, I think having some rules in place ensures a level playing field so that we don't get steamrolled by giant companies. You know, look at look at what happened with in the automotive sector, where a, a giant multinational like General Motors just shuttered its plant in uh, in Oshawa, and the government didn't do anything about it, couldn't do anything about it. Well, if we had a bit of a better regulatory regime in place in any industry, we at least might have some recourse. I think we need to take the same approach with telecommunications, with streaming. Um, We're better off with at least some rules than without. Do you think uh, the fact that uh, Canadian companies are going to have to pay tax or have to pay tax when they offer these services, yet Netflix comes in from another country and doesn't, uh, is that enough to resonate with consumers to understand that the system's not fair? Well, in and of itself, probably not, because let's face it, most consumers don't care if a multi-billion dollar Canadian company is disadvantaged or not. They just want a good deal. Right. But, at the same, but at the same time, if it hits them in their pocketbook, in other words, if, it took, if, if you told them, well, the fact that there is this inequality in the market means that there is less competition, and then a company like Netflix can charge more if they want to. So your monthly bill might go down a bit if there's better regulation in the industry. That might get Canadians to pay attention. That might get them to realize more competition that is influenced by the government benefits us all. What about other countries? That, how are they handling the, net, the Netflix issue? Well, it's interesting because the, 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 at, a, at a country level, for example, there is no national tax in the U.S. on streaming companies like Netflix, but some states do uh, impose taxes on them. So if you live in that state and you are a subscriber, you must pay that particular tax. In Canada as well, some provinces, British Columbia, for example, charges, it, charges GST on services like Netflix. So we're already seeing examples of it, and, and I don't see people running away from Netflix in B.C., I think they recognize that this is the price that we pay for this kind of service in this day and age. If we want to have a sustainable, uh, sustainable and affordable access to streaming entertainment, we're probably going to have to pay the tax man as well. So I think states in the U.S., provinces in Canada that have moved in this direction, they're setting the tone, they're setting the example, and it's only a matter of time before federal governments north and south of the border say, hey, we shouldn't have a hodgepodge of rules here. Let's activate something that crosses all borders and applies to everybody. So BC is doing this on their own. Uh, Obviously, uh, as you mentioned, CRTC is a federal body and such. Um, If we've got provinces doing it on their own and then all of a sudden the federal government decides to tax Netflix, then there'll be two layers of tax. Will there not? Or will the provinces drop theirs? No, I would expect that the provinces would say, you know, let's let's harmonize it. Let's yeah. let's make sure that consumers aren't being double or triple taxed. That you know, there's a level playing field for consumers as well across the country. That just because you live in BC, you shouldn't be disadvantaged because you want to binge watch a couple of things on Netflix every weekend. So, uh, why? How is Netflix so far ahead of everyone else on this? Well, I think, you know, I, I think they, they were the first ones to, first of all, it, it's interesting, they didn't start off as a streaming company. Remember Netflix, it, their, CDs. Uh, in their original form, yeah, or DVDs, DVDs rather. Mail. Yeah. And, and then they, they recognized that that was going to run out at some point, that, you know, high-speed internet connections were changing the nature of the game. They were the first ones to recognize that they could make money from streaming. So they struck some really good licensing deals, and they built infrastructure, and they capitalized on a streaming-based business model before everyone else. And so, you know, to the spoils, to the, to, to the, you know, the spoils go to the victor. Netflix beat everyone else to market, and they deserve to have this level of success, this first mover, 
success. What they've also done is they've recognized that, well, you know what, we only want to watch so many oldies. At some point, we want new, high-quality mm. programming. And so they were the first streaming company to say, hey, we're not just going to license old stuff. We're going to create new stuff, and it'll be high-quality like you see in a movie theater or on HBO. And so they've pushed the bounds of that as well, and they're now being recognized, like Orange is the New Black, House of Cards, The Crown. Uh, I think you mentioned Narcos. Yeah. You know, these are really great shows that everyone loves. They're buzzworthy. They're winning awards, Emmys. Um, and, and so, you know, they've rightfully been rewarded for taking a chance. That costs money, I think we need to recognize. And we can't have the next Orange is the New Black or Narcos unless we're willing to pay for it. But right now, Netflix does it bigger, better, earlier than everyone else, and everyone else is basically playing catch-up. Interesting, fascinating. They had the vision to move from a distribution company to a content creator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, yeah, and, and in the tech industry, like whenever you are willing to, they call it a pivot, and if you have the guts to pivot, because basically you're betting the entire future of the yeah. company, Netflix did that, and you know what? They deserve to get, have the success that they're seeing. And it was funny because most thought that the what was innovative about Netflix was uh, just the whole model, the template. You could get it when you wanted. You you, you know, it was there at your fingertips, no commercials. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now they have positioned themselves, as you mentioned, that are producing some of the, the best uh, product that we're seeing. Uh, does this change the discussion on creating content? Have we, you know, because I guess traditional TV used to do that at one time, but, mm-hmm. you know, it sort of turned into a cookie cutter uh, kind of thing. Uh, is this the future? It's less about distribution. It's more about creating the product. Um, you know, technology will determine the method of distribution. Sure. And, and I mean, obviously, as the technology gets better, distribution becomes more streamlined, easier, and we have better access to things as we want them, at, when we want them on the devices that make the most sense. So certainly, you know, Netflix has never missed an opportunity to capitalize on that distribution technology, and I would expect that to continue. It's part of their culture. But, you know, at the end of the day, content is as king and queen now yeah. as it was decades ago when we were watching it on TV and before we even had VCRs. And so, I think Netflix recognizes that the things that keep us engaged, you know, you know, when we were watching MASH 35-odd years ago, um, it was still a really good show, and we all wanted to talk about it around the water cooler the next day at the office. The same truth applies today, except we're just talking about a different show that we watched a different way. But Netflix recognizes the fundamental things that keep us happy when we watch stuff, those haven't changed at all, and that's going to continue going forward. They'll just adapt behind the scenes to make sure that that distribution matches what our expectations are for that particular point in time. Can other companies compete, especially when it comes to creating their own content? Obviously, as you said, Netflix is way ahead of the game, and it seems that, my goodness, the stuff they're putting out is is top drawer. Can, can the other services, can the other traditional networks even compete with that? I think there's room, um, and you know, certainly the fact that Netflix thinks it can raise rates this quickly, um, this significantly, I think opens a door for competitors to, you know, as consumers start looking mm. elsewhere to say, hey, maybe there's someone else who offers similar value for the dollar. There's, a, there's an opportunity there. But, you know, it's going to cost them. If Bell wants to compete with Crave, it's going to have to invest even more in content than it has. Same thing with Disney in the U.S. They're going to have to continue to pour billions of dollars in. Netflix, we know they, they admitted spending $8 billion this year on, on uh, content. Some reports say that's upwards of $13 billion, and those are U.S. dollars. Um, so if you want to compete with that, you're going to have to crack open your wallet and do the same thing. And so the short answer is, yes, they can compete. Uh, but the caveat is it's going to cost them big time. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you're a consumer, you're like, hey, everyone's competing for my attention. I like that. Netflix raising prices once again, drawing attention and the conversation in regard to uh, taxation and regulation. Carmi Levy has been with us, tech analyst. Carmi, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Scott. You too. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.